welcome to a special additional episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. For the January 7th episode, I interviewed Robert H. Wozniak on the life and career of James Mark Baldwin. The version of the interview that appeared in that episode had been highly edited for time, but Professor Wozniak had many interesting things to say about Baldwin, and the interview went on much longer. So in this episode, I present the interview with Robert H. Wozniak in its entirety. So many of our listeners um, may not be familiar with Baldwin's main intellectual achievements. So could you first tell us a bit about his theory of intellectual development and, and perhaps touch on the influence it had on the much better known theory of Jean Piaget? Uh, certainly. Uh, I think if I had to list Baldwin's main accomplishments, I'd probably uh, include about nine things. <laughs> it seems like a large number, but he was a pretty accomplished guy. Uh, in the period between 1889 and 1894, uh, he carried out psychology's first really well-controlled experimental studies of infant behavior. And in fact, I think I would even go further. I'd say they're among the very first well-controlled studies, experimental laboratory studies, that, although he carried them out in his home, so it wasn't, strictly speaking, a laboratory, uh, that anybody in psychology carried out. <clears throat> and that uh, set the, began to set the stage for other people who wanted to do that sort of work. Uh, the second thing, and maybe in, in, in many ways the most important thing, is that after he got to Princeton around 1894, he started work uh, on a theory of development which appeared in two books, uh, Mental Development of the Child and the Race in 1895 and Social and Ethical Interpretations in Mental Development in 1897, which did something um, that was pretty unique for the period and, to be honest, I think is still unique. That is to say, he actually developed a theory of mind which was sort of biosocial. It made use of evolutionary principles of mind, but it also focused on social-cultural aspects of mind. And uh, one of the reasons I think this is especially important is because even contemporary psychologists have a tremendous amount of difficulty in thinking simultaneously about both the biology of the mind and the sociality of the mind, and indeed, uh, since one of the points of your question was to ask about his relationship to Piaget, if you take not only Piaget but his his uh, his uh, contemporary uh, contemporary theorist uh, Lev Vygotsky, the Soviet psychologist, um, they sort of split in a sense exactly what Baldwin was able to bring together: Piaget having a biological theory of the mind and Vygotsky's social-cultural theory of the mind, and yet, you know, so it's very hard for us to think simultaneously in terms of both of those, uh, those frameworks, and yet here's Baldwin way back in the late 19th century, and he's doing it, and he's doing it remarkably well. Uh, and indeed, um, the biological part of his theory had a very direct emphasis on Piaget, and I'll come back to say something about that in a minute, and the social-cultural theory actually very directly uh, influenced Vygotsky. Uh, particularly Baldwin's concept of social heredity, and if we have time, maybe I'll say something quickly about that as well. So that's probably his most, overall, his most important contribution, intellectual contribution to psychology. Um, another characteristic that I think uh, makes him fairly unique is that uh, his theoretical orientation was probably more complex and more sophisticated than anything that had preceded it in psychology uh, to that day. Um, James was, in some ways, the greater psychologist, and certainly the far greater writer, and uh, that's one of the reasons why the principles of psychology is still read by many psychologists, and whereas Baldwin is not, for example. Um, but James's theory, although extraordinarily um, uh, fertile, uh, particularly fertile in terms of uh, thinking of things that one might do empirically based on his conceptualizations of the self, for example, and habit, et cetera, um, isn't, it's not what I would call a complex theory, the way Piaget's theory is complex, for example, or the way Baldwin's theory is complex. So that, that for the period, was fairly unique. Uh, another thing that makes Baldwin uh, unusual is the incredible range of topics that he analyzed. Uh, he looked at the relationship between thought and reality. He looked at the genesis of logic. He actually has a little theory of learning, he, he, sort of a micro 
developmental or microgenetic theory, but it is, in fact, the theory of learning. Um, he looked at uh, the development of habit, imitation, uh, creativity, altruism, and egoism in kids, morality, and Lawrence Kohlberg in his famous theory of morality made heavy use of some of Baldwin's work. Uh, he looked at self-awareness. He was the first person, to, as far as I've been able to determine, to actually uh, specifically address the question of theory of mind, which of course has now become a very hot topic in developmental psychology. And, and this of course is where he comes in his relationship to Vygotsky, his theory is a theory of enculturation. It's a theory of how children become like-minded with those around them, and that's um, uh, not something that, at the time, anybody else was paying any attention to. Uh, another sort of a fifth thing is that he developed concepts which became very fundamental uh, in sociology and social psychology in an approach that came eventually to be called symbolic interactionism. It was made famous by George Herbert Mead who cited Baldwin actually fairly extensively in his early papers, but not his later papers, uh, for reasons that we may get to later, um, in uh, concepts like the multiplicity of self, for example, differences between real and ideal selves, uh, factors influencing self-esteem, uh, the fact that we, uh, the views we hold of ourselves are views that we hold of how we think other people see us, which uh, Charles Horton Cooley later called the looking glass self, and the importance of sort of general communally held social meanings uh, for our construction of self. All of these were ideas that got taken up, assimilated really, to symbolic inter interactionism, often without uh, direct reference, sometimes with reference to Baldwin, but often without direct reference to him. Vis-a-vis mm -hmm. um, -vis Piaget, he gave uh, psychology both terms and concepts. These were terms which were available in the evolutionary literature, but they hadn't been used by psychology, such as assimilation, accommodation. He invented, as far as I know, the phrase primary circular reaction, although it picks up on something that Alexander Bain had written uh, many years before. Uh, he uh, used the term genetic logic, and indeed, he, he used the term genetic epistemology. He actually wrote a genetic epistemology in the Piagetian sense, in that he wrote a history, a, two, a small two-volume history of psychology, in which he tries to make explicit a parallel between the development of thought in the individual and the development of thought about thought, i.e. the development of psychology uh, as, a, as a science. Um, and Piaget, um, in the 1920s, I think 1923, if I remember correctly, uh, was in Paris, and he was uh, studying, uh, taking courses with Pierre Genet, a great French psychotherapist. And uh, Genet was a very close friend of Baldwin's. Baldwin was in Paris at that time for reasons we'll again come back to, I'm sure. And they were having lunch every Wednesday. And uh, if you look at Genet's lectures, which were all published um, the way the French uh, Sorbonne types like to publish their lectures every year, you can actually see that there was a period where um, Genet started to cite Baldwin quite widely, and he was, in, he was embodying Baldwin's ideas in his own lecturing, and Piaget discovered Baldwin through Genet and then read uh, in French uh, uh, mental development in the child and the race. He claims, Piaget claimed in an interview, uh, which was published uh, many years ago, about 1980, that that was the only, um, uh, the only Baldwin that really he knew about. But I find that personally a little hard to believe because Baldwin actually talked about genetic logic and genetic epistemology and lots of things that Piaget also uh, took up later on in his career. Now, that's not to say, by the way, and I just have to mention this because that's important, that Piaget was in any way um, derived. Uh, Piaget took these concepts of Baldwin and took them much, 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 much further than Baldwin did, both theoretically and even more empirically, because that was one of the limitations of Baldwin's work in his time, is that he had, he had no methods by which he could actually ask the questions that his theory dictated. And so this is by no means to, to um, belittle Piaget, uh, but it is to say that Baldwin did, in fact, have some influence but is in, on, on contemporary developmental psychology, but his influence came sort of through Piaget. Um, a couple of other things he did that are also really important. Um, he edited a three-volume dictionary of philosophy and psychology, uh, which brought together uh, 50 of the greatest minds of the day, and they included people like William James and John Dewey and Charles Sanders Peirce and uh, Titchener, Genet himself, in fact, uh, to 
uh, try to define systematically every major concept in philosophy and psychology of the period, which is, when you think about it, is a kind of mind-boggling enterprise. I don't think anybody would try to do that today, but Baldwin not only tried to do it, but in some important sense, he succeeded. Uh, he published a, a um, gigantic two-volume dictionary with a third volume that uh, concentrates on, on the bibliography um, that is pretty much, I would say, a basic source for anyone interested in intellectual history at the turn of the century. It's an extraordinary compendium, and it had a huge impact on him because he was reading all of this material and thinking about all these things, because he edited literally every single entry and rewrote many of them because some of the people he was working with weren't the greatest of writers, and uh, it changed his own way of thinking in, in many ways, and again, maybe we can come back to that point. Uh, the eighth thing I think I would list is that he uh, articulated um, with a man named Henry Fair Fairfield Osborne, who uh, became an important curator eventually at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and uh, Conway Lloyd Morgan, who was um, uh, a, a very important British uh, animal psychologist uh, and really sort of even broader psychologist and emergentist, emergent theorist eventually, he articulated a, a, a concept which he called organic selection. Um, and it, it had several different manifestations in his own writing. The sort of the, the, the in, in its most well-developed form, the basic idea was that it would be possible to integrate a kind of Lockean idea that um, behaviors that individual animals acquire in the course of their own personal experience, adaptive behaviors, um, actually uh, can become eventually uh, hereditary variations. And the way in which that occurs from Baldwin's point of view is that, um, that what those uh, adaptive behaviors do um, is they differentially increase the survival rate of the organism and therefore the probability that they're going to procreate. Um, and if they happen to be born with hereditary variations that favor those acquisitions, that is, if you think about any particular characteristic, if uh, there's going to be a wide range of, 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 the, in which the, of the ways in which that characteristic is expressed in the population, and if those animals with, uh, that have more of that characteristic or more of a propensity to that characteristic then acquire these behaviors, they will be more likely to survive, more likely to procreate, and therefore those genes, the genes that are in that direction, will be passed on to the next generation, and over evolutionary time and over populations of organisms, therefore these acquired adaptations can, in effect, become congenital. Now, that idea was, it, it, it's, been, it's been cited in biology and evolutionary biology, uh, but it didn't become by any means uh, viewed as a major uh, evolutionary mechanism. Interesting thing, however, is that if you were to put James Mark Baldwin in quotes into Google right now, you would find lots and lots of references to this idea, which has become called the Baldwin effect, not because of evolutionary biology, but because of computer science. One of the things that's happened in computer science in the last 10 years is that there's been a tremendous growth in, of interest in evolutionary systems and genetic algorithms. And uh, this idea uh, that Baldwin had, the Baldwin effect, has actually been embodied in many of the uh, programs that express genetic algorithms. And so you'll see he's much better known, strangely enough, in the computer science literature today than he is uh, among many psychologists. And then the last thing I would, I would list is his um, APA presidential address of 1897, uh, where he took the idea of variation with selection um, from natural selectionist accounts of evolution and attempted to apply it to thinking. Uh, and that paper is often viewed as a kind of milestone in what has become known in philosophy and in some uh, branches of psychology as evolutionary epistemology. And, you know, I'm going to oversimplify this view, but the, the basic notion is that people discover truth in an iterative fashion, a bit at a time. Uh, they do it uh, through a series of selections. We select, that is, we say, hey, that's a good idea, from, me from mental images, which are sort of best guesses, you know, sort of fragmentary mental images, partial hypotheses, uh, and that we allow sort of our mind to play through. And 
we pick in a kind of trial and error fashion from them, and then we those that kind of work or seem to work or, are, or look like they're in the right direction of the solution that we want are the ones that we uh, adopt, select, that is to say, for further exploration. And then gradually, over time, just as you get anatomical differences in animals, over time, as you get variations and selection, and then a new generation coming in, and variation and selection, and a new generation coming in, as the mind turns over these fragmentary hypotheses, these partial uh, mental images and selects from them and then moves on to the next iteration, uh, we gradually move in the direction of solving whatever the problem is that we're, that we're interested in. And, and Baldwin thought that that could eventually lead us in the direction of truth. I don't think he thought we would ever get there. I don't think he was an absolutist in that regard. But at least he thought that this is the way that we could, we could approximate the truth. Um, so those are, ba those, are, uh, those are the things that I would say, and all of which I think are, are obviously pretty important. Wow, that's a, he's obviously a, a major figure. Um, what was uh, his background then? Uh, where was he educated? What were his early interests? Um, well, he was born, first of all, in Columbia, South Carolina in 1861 on January 12th, to be precise, uh, a day that we celebrate in my laboratory, actually. Um, and this, as uh, everyone knows, 1861 is the midst of the Civil War. Uh, his family was very well regarded uh, in Columbia and well liked, but they were Yankees. They had come from New York and Connecticut originally. And so uh, when the war really started to heat up, they uh, went north uh, and, and fled uh, Columbia for, uh, for the duration of the war. After the war, they went back to Columbia. As probably many of the, your listeners know, Columbia was burned almost entirely to the ground during the war uh, by northern soldiers. But strangely enough, the Baldwin house was uh, spared, and they went back to Columbia, and Baldwin went to grade school in Columbia. And one very interesting aspect of this is he attended the same school in Columbia as uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, and although Wilson was a couple of years older than Baldwin, and we don't know uh, because Baldwin doesn't say anything about it, and nothing I've been able to find in anything that's been written about Wilson says anything about it, whether or not he really knew Wilson or how well he knew Wilson at that time. But it's of interest um, because his relationships with Wilson later on were anything but positive, and it would be interesting to discover that, in fact, uh, this antipathy between them uh, had its roots as early as their common grade school in Columbia, but I don't know that for a fact. Um, after he finished grade school, he worked for a couple of years, and then his family sent him north to Salem, New Jersey, to a preparatory school. I think school might be a little strong. I think it was a case of three or four students living in the house that was run by his uncle by marriage, his mother's uh, sister's brother. Uh, but um, whether it was a school or whether it was just a tutorial, they must have done a good job because uh, after, uh, uh, after being with his uncle for two years, uh, he entered Princeton in 1881 as a sophomore, uh, which means he passed the entrance examination and actually also passed out of the first year, and he graduated with his bachelor's degree in 1884. When he was at Princeton, his major interests, I would say, were mental philosophy, uh, philosophy of mind, Theology, and indeed, for a period of time, he thought very seriously about becoming uh, an ordained minister and went to, uh, to um, theological school, and uh, writing. He was the managing editor of the Nassau Literary Magazine, one of the, uh, probably still maybe, but certainly at that time, one of the foremost college literary magazines uh, in the country. And interestingly, uh, he wrote a lot for it. So there are, there's a whole series of sort of Baldwin, early Baldwin publications from 1887, uh, not 1887, I'm sorry, 1883 uh, and the beginning of 1884. There are his first publications that are not specifically, although one or two were on philosophical topics actually, that are, but most of them are not. Um, and, uh, and these actually are the beginning of his bibliography, as it were. So uh, he, had, he was already pretty well published even by the time he graduated from college. After he left Princeton, he received a fellowship called the Green Fellowship in Mental Science. It gave him the opportunity to spend a year in Europe, uh, traveling, studying, etc. And he went to Wundt at Leipzig, and he spent a portion of the semester uh, in Leipzig, uh, hanging out around the laboratory. He didn't do any research himself, but he certainly learned about things that were going on. He became, uh, that was his first um, meeting with Cattell. They used to play tennis together. 
and they become, became at that time somewhat good friends, I would say, uh, a friendship that did not last, unfortunately, throughout Baldwin's life. And he, he was a contentious guy, and many of the people that uh, started out liking him ended up not liking him quite as well. And uh, then he went to um, Berlin, and he did spend, as far as I've been able to determine, a whole semester there uh, working with a very famous um, uh, German philosopher named Friedrich Paulsen uh, and studying Spinoza under Paulsen. Uh, Paulson was a Spinoza scholar. Uh, when he came back to Princeton in 1885, uh, he spent uh, a year as an instructor in French and German, um, a rather peculiar position because, as far as I can tell, uh, his French wasn't very good. Um, even when he was in Paris later on, his French doesn't appear to have been very good. And um, I'm not even so sure about his German, but nonetheless, he was instructor in French and German. And during that period, maybe to improve, improve his, his uh, German act, or no, it's French, I guess it would have been, uh, he um, translated uh, Ribot's German Psychology of Today uh, into, into English. Um, he also published his first actual uh, scholarly paper, which is called The Postulates of the Physiological Psychology. And just to come to an end, but also really answer that second part of your question, that paper, this 1887 Postulates of the Physiological Psychology, is actually a very important paper in Baldwin's career because it pulls together all of, in fact, his first interests. It embodies uh, elements of the Scottish mental philosophy that he learned with his, his uh, mentor at Princeton, James McCosh, who was in the Reed Stewart tradition of Scottish philosophy. It embodies uh, Spinoza. It embodies what he learned about experimental psychology from Wundt. And it also embodies uh, work by a man named Elie Rabier, who was a French uh, spiritualist philosopher uh, about which nobody seems to know anything much, except he did write one book, and Baldwin clearly wrote it because he cites it. Um, and I sort of have the feeling that Baldwin probably read that book to get his French up to speed so he could work with the Princeton students in their French. Uh, but, you know, Baldwin had the kind of mind when he read anything, he tended to make use of it. And he, this paper of 1887 brings all of these things together in a, in a really interesting uh, synthesis that sort of laid a foundation for his later ideas. Mm -hmm. so, so after he gets his, his PhD at Princeton, he, he does brief stints teaching at uh, Lake Forest College near Chicago, and then at the University of Toronto, where he founds uh, his first experimental psychology laboratory. Um, but then Baldwin was called to a position as alma mater of Princeton in 1893. And among his considerable achievements during this period were, uh, were that he was an important framer of the disciplinary institutions of psychology, as well as the intellectual work you talked about before. Is, is that right? Absolutely. Um, in fact, this was the period, really, in which psychology professionalized, in the sense that it was the period where journals were being founded, where societies were being founded, uh, where people began to think of themselves as having an identity of psychologist rather than a uh, philosopher interested in the mind, for example. And Baldwin was one of the major figures in that regard. Um, you already mentioned that he, he founded a laboratory at the University of Toronto, but he also founded a laboratory at Princeton. And when he eventually went to Johns Hopkins, which we'll come back to talk about, I think, um, he resuscitated uh, G. Stanley Hall's lapse laboratory there as well. So uh, sort of, you know, he was one of the people who, uh, in the forefront of the, sending the message to college presidents and those in charge of budgets, hey, psychology is becoming a science or, or it has scientific techniques. It needs laboratories. Laboratories mean funding. Uh, they mean laboratory assistance. And they give the discipline uh, an institutional niche, which they wouldn't otherwise have had. And Baldwin thought that was extremely important. He also was the founder of journals. He co-founded the Psychological Review with James McKean Cattell. Um, it was the second major American journal after the American Journal of Psychology, which had been founded a few years earlier by G. Stanley Hall. But Hall ran the American Journal in a fairly, um, fairly dictatorial fashion. Uh, Cattell and Baldwin didn't like that and decided that they would start their own journal, which, with the support of, of uh, uh, William James and uh, Munsterberg, Hugo Munsterberg at Harvard, they in fact were able to do. Um, he also founded, and of course still the Psychological Review is one of the major journals 
psychology. He also founded the Psychological Bulletin. This he did in 1904 on his own because he and Cattell had come to a parting of the ways. In fact, when they were editing the Psychological Review, one of them had to edit it one year and one the next, so they alternated because they couldn't get along even with the review. And by 1904, things had deteriorated to the point where uh, they really couldn't collaborate at all. And uh, they had a famous meeting in which um, they did a silent auction uh, in which one or the other would buy them out of the journal because in those days uh, journals were actually owned by the people's, people who edited them rather than by societies. And uh, Cattell um, kept upping the bid by $1,000 and Baldwin, every time Cattell would up the bid, he put 1000 Baldwin would put $1,000 and one. And then Cattell would say 2000 Baldwin would write down 2002 and Cattell would say 3,000, Baldwin 3,003, and eventually Cattell uh, got just threw down his pencil because he'd gotten to the point where he beyond which he would have he told his wife that he wouldn't go beyond a certain amount, and Baldwin got got the psychological review, which he then edited by himself. But to it, he added the he added the psychological bulletin, uh, which was a, a a journal that specialized in reviews, basically review articles and reviews of books, and he also um, was responsible for starting. Uh, the psychological index, which eventually became the psychological abstracts, which eventually became something that almost all students of psychology know today as PsychInfo uh, in its electronic form. Uh, he was also president of APA, but that's not so so uh, big a deal because, quite frankly, APA was a very small and practically all of the first uh, couple of generations of uh, major American psychologists at one time or another served as president of APA, but he was also the founding president of the Society of Southern Society for Philosophy and Psychology, which still exists. And a little-known fact about his contribution to professionalization is that um, shortly after the turn of the century, about 1902, before he, well, he was still at Princeton and before he moved to Hopkins, uh, he was asked by the Carnegie Institution of Washington to serve as an advisory committee of one on what uh, topics in psychology, what issues in psychology should be funded. Um, this is obviously fairly important because this is the first time that any uh, major philanthropic institution, and of course this is long before the government got involved in funding research, any major philanthropic institution had uh, decided to actually look at psychology and see whether or not it would be worth putting some of their funds uh, behind psychological research. And they asked Baldwin to write a report on the scholarly needs of psychology uh, for the purpose of helping them set their funding priorities, and that report, in fact, was published in 1903 uh, under the title Report of the Advisory Committee on Psychology. And the Advisory Committee was really a committee of one, except that Baldwin solicited letters uh, from Jastrow and Titchener and Munsterberg and Cattell and Ladd, and they were published along with his report. Uh, it turned out, after all that work, that the Carnegie Institution didn't actually fund anything in psychology right away, although they did eventually. In fact, they funded some of John Watson's uh, uh, work uh, his, his studies of birds up in the islands, um, but at that time they didn't. But nonetheless, it was a step in the right direction in the sense of getting psycho beginning to get psychology on the on the funding agenda map. So uh, after about a decade at Princeton, um, he he left for this post at Johns Hopkins that you've mentioned a couple of times, where he reestablished uh, G. Stanley Hall's old psychology laboratory. Um, why did he decide to leave Princeton, and what did he achieve while he was at Hopkins? Well, the simple answer uh, to that question is that Hopkins made him an offer that was too good to turn down. Uh, they gave him a very prestigious chair. Uh, they gave him a huge salary increase. Uh, they gave him funds to establish, uh, reestablish the Department of Philosophy, but really establish it as a new Department of Philosophy and Psychology, which included money to hire uh, a junior faculty member to run the laboratory, and Baldwin, of course, had the choice of who that person was going to be, and included also funds uh, to hire other people to do what we would now probably call adjunct teaching. Uh, and uh, in particular, these people were, the, all these folks were doing graduate teaching, because at that time Hopkins was an uh, exclusively graduate institution, and what that did is it freed Baldwin from any undergraduate teaching, which he had come to find uh, burdensome, and it gave him access to what were then, I'd say, the 
best graduate students in the country. Um, Hopkins was the place that he went to if he wanted a graduate degree in 1904. They also gave him permission to reestablish Hall's lab, as you said, uh, and the funds to do it. Um, and it's a, you know, I already mentioned that Baldwin was a contentious person. Uh, he had friendships that often uh, broke up. Uh, but there were some people. There are some people that he always was a friend with and a friend to. And, and one was William James. He was a very close friend of James. They actually spent time together in summers. Uh, and James considered Baldwin a uh, protege, actually, and really liked him a great deal. Uh, but one person that Baldwin absolutely could not stand, he was never able to stand him, um, was G. Stanley Hall. And I think that Baldwin's great disliking for Hall led him to sort of jump at the opportunity to go to Hopkins and do things that were bigger and better than Hall had done. Um, and if you understand something about Baldwin's personality and his need to always outdo everybody around him, it's easy to understand why that might have been the case. There were two other reasons why, apart from just the offer and the possibility of going and doing something great at Hopkins. Two other reasons that uh, I think probably entered into his decision making. Uh, one had to do with his family. During the entire 10 years of his um, residence in Princeton, uh, he shared a house with his in-laws. It was a large house. Uh, he liked his father-in-law quite a great deal. His father-in-law was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and a, quite a famous man, became acting president for a time. Um, he uh, seems to have liked his, his mother-in-law as well. Uh, the the, uh, the in-laws had one end of the house, and the uh, Baldwins had the other end of the house, but I don't think it takes a lot of imagination uh, to recognize that uh, 10 years of living in the same house with your in-laws might lead you to want to go off a little bit on your own, and I think this was an opportunity. You couldn't really do that in Princeton because it would have been too much of a slap in, in their face, but by taking a position at, um, uh, in Baltimore, he was able to sort of go and, and buy his own house, as it were, and in fact, the house he bought was a very famous one. It's no longer there, uh, but it was a very famous one uh, in Baltimore that had been built many years ago by an important politician. The other reason, uh, and this is a very long story and a complicated story, but it's an important one in Baldwin's life, is that um, he was extremely dissatisfied with a turn of events that had taken place in Princeton uh, just prior to his departure. And that turn of events was the uh, appointment election of Woodrow Wilson to be uh, president of Princeton. Um, Baldwin and Wilson did not get along at Princeton, but it wasn't just that. I think Baldwin could have tolerated a president that he didn't like. It's that Baldwin considered Wilson to be anti-scientific. And indeed, if you look at some of the speeches that, Bo that Wilson gave at Princeton during that period, uh, he's very critical of the sciences. He was very much a humanist. He was himself a historian, of course, as everyone probably knows. Um, and he... Uh, stress the importance of the humanities and uh, de-stress the importance of the sciences. And I think Baldwin felt that there was handwriting on the wall here that the funding for psychology and the importance of psychology in the global scheme of things at Princeton uh, was uh, on the downward trend and it was time for him, him to leave. Um, he also uh, later on had real antipathy for Wilson that had to do with issues that took place around World War I, but perhaps we'll come back to that. In any case, I think there were lots of reasons for Baldwin to go to, Bal to Baltimore, and I think once he got there, uh, for at least the first four years that he was there, uh, he was very happy to be there. Well, and then in 1908, uh, Baldwin was arrested in a Baltimore brothel, and his academic career, at least in America, came to a rather speedy conclusion. Could you tell us a bit about that scandal and how Baldwin's life unfolded afterwards? Well, uh, uh, I can tell you what I know. Uh, the reality is that we actually don't know very much about the scandal. Uh, what we do know comes almost exclusively from a couple of letters that Baldwin wrote to his colleagues, most especially Titchener, immediately after the scandal broke, and for, from some very slight amount of material that's in the presidential papers at, uh, at Hopkins. Uh, the facts are fairly simple. He seems to have been present in a uh, uh, 
uh, Baltimore brothel, as you've said, um, just uh, before the police showed up. Now, uh, this was a period in Baltimore. Baltimore was a very wide-open city at the turn of the century, even by 1904, 19, even in 1904-1905, it was still the case. There was a lot of prostitution. Um, and it appears that this was a period where the city was beginning to try to clean itself up. And so they were starting to raid some of these uh, houses. And uh, Baldwin uh, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, shall we say. I don't know that he was, I have not been able to find out that he was truly arrested in the sense that we normally think of arrest, that is, uh, put in handcuffs and taken down to the station. In fact, that does not seem to be what happened. What seems to have happened is that he was sent home, which wasn't, wouldn't have been surprising in that period. I mean, you know, Baltimore was still a quasi-southern city, and at that time, in a quasi-southern city, a uh, important, well-known, uh, affluent, white male uh, who was found in a house of prostitution probably would have been sent home. Um, and that might have been the end of it, uh, except for the fact that Baldwin was on the short list to be appointed by the mayor to the school board. That list had already been, in fact, announced in the newspaper. And apparently, uh, although I don't know the specifics of this yet and have not been able to, to, to sort of pin it down, apparently uh, newspaper reporters got wind of the fact that someone who was going to be appointed to the school board or might be appointed to the school board had been arrested in a house of prostitution, and they were quite concerned about that. And that's when the scandal broke. That wasn't actually until 1909. It took a while for all of this to unfold. And when the scandal itself broke, when this became public, um, the board of trustees, and in particular the head of the board of trustees, put pressure on the president of Hopkins, um, a chemist by the name of Ira Remsen, to ask for Baldwin's resignation. And Baldwin uh, always claimed that he was innocent, uh, innocent of any obvious intent at Abrado, that he didn't realize that that's what it was. He referred to it as a social club. Um, I, to be honest, have not been able to find out exactly what that meant in 1908, what it meant to be a social club, whether it was like, you know, a place where people played music or what. But um, he claimed that he didn't go there for the obvious reasons, that he was uh, trapped uh, inadvertently, um, and uh, that he resigned, which he did do, uh, at Hopkins uh, for the sake of his family. He had two daughters and his wife, of course, and that he wanted to save them the embarrassment of the scandal becoming really, really public. And so it, he felt it was easier to resign than to try to fight uh, the, the accusation that he uh, was essentially um, caught doing something immoral. Uh, and the interesting thing is that among his colleagues, uh, the immorality of being in a house of prostitution or caught in a house of prostitution was somewhat less seriously viewed than their belief that he was actually lying about it. They thought that he, in fact, was not innocent and that these claims of innocence were him just trying to cover himself. And um, there were a number of them that really felt that it wasn't, you know, if he just simply admitted it and gone on about his business, they wouldn't have felt so badly. But that by not admitting it and trying to pretend that he was innocent, that he was actually bringing uh, a kind of, uh, 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 if I may use the phrase, ill repute uh, to psychology as a whole. And that's one of the reasons that he was ostracized um, after that after that took place. Now, as far as how his life unfolded, in the years between the resignation, 1909 and 1912, he divided his time between Mexico and Paris. Uh, he moved out, of, he sold his house in Baltimore, moved away from Baltimore, uh, got an apartment in Paris, but he spent a fair amount of time in Mexico. Um, he always claimed that, um, in fact, he claimed in, in, in the press when he resigned as a kind of cover story that the reason he was resigning was because Mexico had appointed him to be uh, an advisor to the president on the restructuring of education in Mexico. In fact, that doesn't actually seem to be quite the case. That's a bit of an overstatement. He was uh, asked to uh, consult um, at, with the government, but that seems to have been a very kind of minor sort of uh, relationship. Uh, and he was given a position lecturing in the School of Higher Studies at the National University of Mexico, and he did, in fact, give 
a course on the history of psychology there and a course in social psychology there, both of which he later published his books. In fact, the history of psychology course, the one I mentioned before, in which, which he actually taught as and then published as a kind of genetic epistemology. Um, but when he was in Mexico, he was in Paris. And in fact, in 1910, he was elected to succeed William James after James died as correspondent, uh, corresponding member, essentially, of the Academy of Moral and Political Sciences in the Institute of Defense. That's a very prestigious uh, thing. Uh, we don't, I don't think we fully appreciate, uh, uh, as North Americans, just how prestigious uh, it still is, actually, but was in those days. If you were a member of the Academy in Paris, you got the best tables in the restaurants, you got pre pre preference if you needed tickets for the theater, uh, if you needed an apartment, uh, you were likely to get uh, the best apartments. It was the, 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 French, the Parisian French uh, knew how to take care of their intellectuals, and Baldwin's appointment as a, a member, even though a corresponding member, because he wasn't French, of course, he couldn't be a full member of the academy, was a, uh, a major uh, coup in that regard. Uh, there, it, there, it seems to be some evidence also that he had some kind of an appointment at the École des Voitudes Sociales, but it's not clear to me at least, at least yet just exactly what that appointment was, and I don't know anybody who knows anything about it. So that's sort of work still to be done to find out about it. After the outbreak of World War I, but before the Americans entered World War I uh, on behalf of the Allies, Baldwin uh, devoted himself to trying to get the U.S. involved in the war. Um, as probably some of your uh, listeners know, Woodrow Wilson was uh, extraordinarily slow, and this is one of the things about Wilson that Baldwin really, really despised. He couldn't make up his mind. He wanted to remain neutral. He, even despite the fact that um, uh, even after the sinking of the Lusitania, for example, by the German Navy, uh, you know, Wilson was still dragging his feet about whether the United States should enter the war. And Baldwin uh, dedicated himself to a kind of public relations campaign on behalf of the French uh, in favor of the uh, uh, American entrance. In 1916, for example, he authored something called Message from Americans Abroad to Americans at Home that was um, uh, a kind of pamphlet that was circulated by uh, the American Rights League. He eventually published it uh, as a, an anti-Wilson uh, treatise called American Neutrality, Its Cause and Cure. Um, he delivered the Herbert Spencer Lecture at Oxford, which was an attack on uh, German political ideology. Uh, and uh, this is all before he survived um, with his wife and daughter, although his daughter was crippled permanently as a result of this, a torpedo attack by a German submarine on a French, unarmed French passenger liner called uh, the Sussex as it was crossing the English Channel. Uh, in that, on that same boat, in fact, the famous um, Spanish composer Enrique Granados perished. Uh, he drowned uh, as a result of the attack. Uh, Baldwin's daughter, as I said, was badly injured. They barely escaped with their lives. Uh, and when Baldwin finally got back to France, he sent a telegram to Wilson uh, regarding the affair and the shame that the United States would allow these sorts of things to happen without getting involved uh, in the war. And that telegram, actually, which was a kind of open letter to the president was uh, included by the New York Times in 1916, in April of 1916, in their editorial condemnation of the German attack on the Sussex. So throughout the whole war, Baldwin really worked very hard to get the U.S. in. Finally, when the U.S. did enter the war, he spent a lot of his time working in charity and relief efforts on behalf of the French people. And in fact, um, he was eventually awarded the Legion of Honor by the French government. Uh, he organized the Paris branch of the Navy League. Um, so, you know, it's, he's an interesting person in that here's this guy who was a tremendously important intellectual who loses his possession, position in the academy and then turns all of his very formidable talents in uh, a political direction, a political and a sort of... Uh, uh, well, political direction proselytizing for the importance of the French in particular, uh, and he was a very, very strong Francophile, to put it mildly. Um, during the same period, he also did maintain informal academic contact with people like Henri Bergson and Genet, for example. 
example, and also went back and forth to Oxford. And there, he, uh, one of his closest friends, E.B. Poulton, the, the biologist. Um, but he doesn't seem to have really done very. He published a few books, but they're all books that are sort of uh, tying up loose ends from his earlier his earlier work. He doesn't really develop anything that I would consider a new psychological idea after uh, he goes to Paris. Uh, he finishes a four-volume work called Thought and Things, which he'd started um, in 1906 uh, at Hopkins. Uh, but it's really all ideas that were already developed, and I think he felt he had to complete them. He did, and then when he had finished them, he moved on to this political work. Um, the only other major publication of this period, and it's worth reading, it's quite interesting, came in 1926, and it's a, a biography, an autobiography with letters called Between Two Wars. And uh, it was published um, as a kind of vanity press. I mean, he paid for the publication himself. I don't think probably by 1926 very many people in the United States even remembered who he was. Um, but it's a very interesting work. Uh, and then he died eventually in Paris uh, in November of 1934, and his body was brought back to Princeton, and he's buried uh, in a cemetery. I believe it's a Presbyterian cemetery, although I have yet to be able to find the, the grave marker uh, in Princeton. And, the, and I should add, by the way, that the only psychologist who showed up at his funeral, and in fact was a pallbearer, was Pierre Genet, who came all the way from Paris for the funeral. But there were no other psychologists there, even people who knew him really, really well when he was a young man. So that by 1934, he had completely dropped below the radar screen of psychology. Mm -hmm. um, we've uh, done this entire interview without mentioning at all uh, uh, Baldwin's role in bringing uh, John B. Watson to Hopkins and to mm -hmm. prominence in psychology, and I guess his inadvertent role in bringing about the uh, subsequent behaviorist revolution. Would you like to talk about that a little? Well, the um, it was an inadvertent role in bringing him to prominence as well, in a sense, because uh, uh, basically what happened is that uh, Baldwin recruited uh, Watson from the University of Chicago to uh, Baltimore, and Watson showed up in guess when, 1908, uh, at virtually the exact time that Baldwin's uh, disaster began to befell him and then his, his academic life began to unravel. So here's this um, relatively young man, in fact, really quite young man, I think, uh, probably, let's see, I think Watson was born around 1879, so that would make him 30, mm -hmm. approximately. He shows up at, at Hopkins, and they... Uh, the big professor, the chair of the department, the editor of the Psychological Review, the editor of the Psychological Bulletin, uh, all of these things that Baldwin was doing, suddenly just disappears. And um, Baldwin needed somebody to take over the reins of these things. And he looked around and he thought that Watson was a capable person, as Watson was, in fact, and he sort of gave him the opportunity to do that. So all of a sudden... Watson, I mean, Watson, talk about somebody who was at the right place at the right time. Watson was sort of um, uh, just propelled into a position of much greater uh, prominence than he would otherwise have had had Baldwin stayed there and Watson been the junior professor under him. And indeed, knowing what we know about Watson's personality one and Baldwin's personality, one suspects that had Baldwin actually stayed there, probably Watson wouldn't have been around for very long because I can't imagine the two of them having, having gotten along, to be very honest. Now, as for the behaviorist part of it, yeah, the interesting thing, of course, as I'm sure other people in this series have discussed, um, behaviorism um, is not wildly different from functionalism. Um, the, the, issue in, the issues in functionalism, of course, are, you know, what is the function of the mind? That is, what is its use? What does the mind do for you? Uh, how does the mind function over time? So how does the, what are the processes of mind as they unfold over time? And then what is mind a function of? That is to say, what stimuli in the environment, what events in the environment um, influence what's actually happening mentally? Now, it's a pretty small step in certain ways, although a radical one, I'll grant, but still a pretty small step, to take the word mind or consciousness out of everything I just said and stick in the word behavior, in which case, you know, how does behavior change over time? 
what stimuli environment is uh, behavior uh, a function of, and uh, what good is behavior? What does it function for? And the fundamental tenets of behaviorism, of course, uh, come directly from functionalism, which is hardly surprising because, of course, Watson was studying with uh, Angel, and especially Angel, but also Dewey was there in Jacques Lerbe at Chicago. And, uh, and he grew up in his, in his uh, intellectual adolescence uh, as a functionalist. Baldwin was also a functionalist. Uh, Baldwin was committed to this way of thinking. He was a little bit more, he, unlike um, Angel, but not unlike Dewey, he was a genetic functionalist or a developmental functionalist. And he put, he put the context, the, these questions of sort of function in the context of, of uh, the development of the organism, both phylogenesis of the organism and also the ontogenesis of the individual organism. Um, but because, of course, he was also interested in phylogenesis, he was very sensitive to and sympathetic with animal behavior and animal uh, the study of behavior. And so uh, it's not surprising to me at all, actually, that he would have found Watson and Watson's work uh, very exciting and interesting. Of course, this is 1908, remember, and Watson didn't articulate the famous uh, Behaviorist Manifesto until 1913. So Watson's ideas uh, were still developing um, themselves at this point. Uh, but nonetheless, they were in a direction that was uh, that with which Baldwin would have been sympathetic. Uh, I don't think he would have been sympathetic with Watson's personality. And as I said, had he stayed, I think that might have been a problem. But the reality is, he didn't stay. He left. He sort of bequeathed to Watson uh, the department, the journals, uh, his students, uh, and you know, Watson had um, a big boost up in his career as a result. All right. Well, thank you very much for this today. So that's the complete interview with uh, Professor Robert H. Wozniak of Bryn Mawr College about James Mark Baldwin. Um, Professor Wozniak is uh, currently working on a biography of Baldwin, and he is the editor of several of the reprint series that are published by Thomas Press of Bristol, England. And he is also the author of a chapter entitled Metaphysics and Science, Reason and Reality, The Intellectual Origins of Genetic Epistemology, which was published in J. Broughton and D.J. Freeman Moyer's book, The Cognitive Developmental Psychology of James Mark Baldwin, published by Ablex in 1982. If you are interested in reading some of Baldwin's own writings... You can go to the Classics in the History of Psychology website, where you will find things like his description of the psychology laboratory that he established at the University of Toronto, um, his contributions to a debate with uh, Titchener that he had in 1895 and 96 that ultimately led to the founding of functionalism. Uh, you will also find a good portion of his 1901 Dictionary of Philosophy and Psychology that was mentioned by Professor Wozniak during the interview, um, his entire history of psychology, and an autobiographical chapter that he contributed to uh, Murchison's History of Psychology and Autobiography in 1930. And that's it for this special additional episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. Um, as always, we would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website today in the history of psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 